So tonight we are going to continue again with uh, greed is where we're at. We're with these qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. And I just want to set a little bit of a framing here because we can sometimes, I see it a lot on retreat. I go on retreat and I teach on retreat so much. I see a lot of this where the retreat practice or a day-long practice or even sitting with a Dhamma talk or doing your daily practice, it feels like that the whole of this practice is about meditation and getting some kind of stillness and some kind of steadiness to the way we are and that the whole of it, that's all there is because in the way that we have framed this practice here in the West, it is overly dominated by meditation. As if meditation, the better my meditation, the better everything is. And, and that can cause us to get trapped in a comparing, kind of judging, fixing mind. That's what the Philip calls it. This comparing mind is always comparing uh, one sit to another. It compares our practice to someone else, whether we're as still as the person over there is. There's just this constant comparing all the time, whether one is better or worse than, or I'm, I'm just like them. Everything's, I'm, I'm doing just, I'm doing okay. Everything's good. So we can compare everything. Or we judge things as being good or bad, and we get caught in fixing everything that's bad. Fixing, fixing, fixing. Always trying to make things the way we think is the better way for things to be. So when you, when your whole practice is centered around your meditative practice, then the rest of your world as a householder becomes nothing. I mean, it's just, it's just a thing that I do. And I'm always focused on practice. I can't tell you how many people, um, will come to me, especially during the pandemic. They would come to me for a practice meeting and say, I've lost my practice. It's all gone. You know, something bad would happen. I've lost my practice. Everybody's losing their practice. And I'm like, are, are you still a practitioner? Well, yes, but I've lost my practice. If you're a practitioner, you never lose your practice. Never lose your practice. You don't lose it when you leave retreat, and you don't lose it when you are out and about all day. The practice itself is still there. But it has a different resonance with us. And the best way to begin to see this is through these unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. So Buddha said, I cannot wash away sins. And I just think we have to remember this every once in a while. He said, I cannot wash away your sins with water. Nor can I remove your suffering with my hand. I cannot transfer my realization to you. Uh, The only way I can help you is through giving teachings and that you should strive to liberate yourself. It's just a very strange way of practicing in a practice that points towards freedom, and yet the very nature of this practice you cannot get from anyone else. And what that means is the only time this practice matters is when you're by yourself, you and your moment, your situation, whatever it is, whatever kind of situation it is, it doesn't matter. It's not just on the cushion. It's just you and your situation. Your moment in time. The going on retreats, the sitting and having a daily meditation practice, the doing day longs and listening to Dhamma talks, 
reading what the Buddha says, hearing a quote that the Buddha says, these are things to inspire us so that when we're in that moment, me and my practice, we will be inspired to give it a try. We will be inspired to try something and see what can be understood about practice in this moment. Because the whole of practice is really nothing more than what we do moment to moment. We say it all the time, but it really is nothing more than that. There's no um, ultimate realization. In fact, every single one of us, if I were to assume that every single one of us were to at some point in our lifetime awaken because of our practice, not one of us would be there when we do. Because by the time we get to a place of awakening, we won't have any self-interest in it. We won't have any greed in it. No wanting to look good. No wanting to be perfect. We won't have comparing. We won't have this judging mind. We won't have hatred or ill will. That we will have understood what is greed, what is hatred, and what is delusion. We would have understood it by the time awakening happens. So the whole of the practice has to be around each one of us coming to our own understanding for ourselves. Each one of us coming to our own understanding of what this is for ourselves. Um, Trumpa Rinpoche, who was one of my very first teachers, uh, in fact, he was my first teacher, not one of, he was the first teacher I ever found to bring me into this Dhamma. And he said, a quote he said was, absolute warriors or idealistic warriors don't struggle. It's kind of strange. They don't struggle. Their actual inspiration comes from the situation as it is. If the situation becomes more and more overwhelming and powerful, that much more energy goes along with it. It's like judo or jujitsu. You use the situation as your power rather than trying to fight with it. So there's a, a, a point that he's pointing to is that the more we begin to see that in order for you to understand what greed is, two things have to happen. One, you got to feel some greed. You got to have greed. You got to know this is greed. I can feel it. And you have to be in a place where you feel the absence of greed, both feeling greed and the absence of greed. This is what you use to begin to know what greed is and how greed is. So I'm going to give a talk about greed mostly to inspire you to feel into this and not be afraid of it, to not have this sense that greed is some terrible thing that I can't even ever admit that I ever have any connection with. I remember one time, uh, I had this therapist one time, and I was having all of this uh, frustration and rage and irritation about all the stuff that other people were having. And so I was sitting there telling her, I just am overwhelmed with all this anger. And um, I don't even know why I'm so angry. And so she's like, well, just tell me some of the things you're, you're, uh, you're, you're experiencing. So I was telling her that, or when I get angry and I'm telling her, so-and-so got this promotion, I wanted to get this case and this person got it and, my neighbor down the street got this new car and I never have enough money to get a new car. And I'm just grumbling about all the stuff 
that um, other people have and I don't have. And she said, that sounds like jealousy to me, Tori. I'm like, jealousy? I'm a Christian. I don't get jealous. What are you talking about? She was like, that's jealousy. And I said, no, that's not. I can't be jealous. I don't covet other people's stuff. And she's like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to, want, I don't want to be the one to tell you, but yes, that's jealousy. And I'm like, oh, I got to figure out how to stop this. And she goes, no, you don't. You just have to shift your perspective. So you begin to understand what you think you're worthy of. What you think you, you feel connected to. So if I just spend the whole time grumbling because someone else has it, then I miss the point. I miss the point of really beginning to see that I was gradually learning to actually appreciate myself. I was actually thinking, I don't need just an old raggedy car. I want a nice car. I want to start taking money that I have and actually buying me a nice car, which is exactly what I did. I've been driving around with some kind of hoopty my whole life. And then after we talked, I actually went and got a new car. It's not like I couldn't get a new car, but I didn't even know that because I was so busy thinking that I wasn't worthy of something and instead grumbling at what everybody else had. And she took that moment and shifted that understanding from jealousy to beginning to see what is important to me. What did I have a value around to me? So not to grab it and hold it, but just to begin to learn my own value, my own worthiness, my own sense of who I was. In a way, that's what you're doing with greed. If you just label things as greed, then you are tempted to just say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't have, I have no greed here. And you'll miss the other side of greed. So I want to talk a little bit about greed as desire. Uh, probably over the course of the month, we've kind of talked about greed as desire. But it's the energy of this desire that we could look at. And, and it could be go in two completely different directions. So there is an energy called um, Chanda. Chanda, it's a Pali word, and it's used for aspiration, aspiration, intention, but it's pointing towards this aspiration or intention to liberate the mind, to free ourselves from some kind of uh, torment, to not be tied to this tormenting mind and to be free of it. And there's a, a necessary aspiration. That is a necessary aspiration. It's probably the aspiration that every single person in this room touched into when they begin to practice, when they begin to, when you had that inkling to learn meditation, to want it, to step on the path, to begin to come and um, practice. I can remember when I first used to come to uh, Seattle Inside. Oh, we used to be in this church in the basement. And uh, it was it was uh, it was not as big a room as this. I don't think I can't remember. But all I remember is that when I first started going, I could find myself in the basement. Um, you know, you could come right at seven o'clock, and you could get inside and sit, find a seat, and you're good. But then somehow Rodney blew up in the world. Like, I don't know what happened. And I remember showing up one day, right around 7 o'clock, and I had to sit on the stairs leading to the basement because the basement was packed. And then I would have to come early if I ever wanted to get inside that room. So I'd come early, I'd get inside the room, and we would talk about the Dhamma, and I could feel as though I was 
Like the whole world was opening up to me. There was so much possibility of what could happen, uh, the level of freedom that was possible. I could feel this sense of wanting to know more about Dhamma, wanting to be a part of it, wanting to just be a part of Sims. And I never missed. I never missed a Monday. Never. It didn't matter. Trials. I didn't care what was going on in my life. I was showing up on Monday. And I wasn't going to be late. I was showing up early. I was late to everything except for Monday nights. I didn't want to sit on the stairs. But something about that practice set in me this desire, this energy, this wanting to be free of this tormenting mind. That desire is in some respects the exact same desire that causes us to um, struggle and fight our minds in the middle of a meditation. It's like striving. It's the same kind of energy. One is based in greed and one is based in chanda. Same desire, but they show up energetically very, very different. So this chanda is powerful. And that chanda, that this was back in 2001, and I was moving my energy towards this liberative understanding. And I had to go through many years of ups and downs and anger and rage and all these defilements that I'm looking at all the time that never seem to change. And I'm just constantly on this path to try to see if I could free my mind from all these defilements. In fact, um, uh, Jasmine must be having a great time over there. I can see that. <laughs> Appreciate Ken helping her out. <laughs> so, uh, Ajahn Chah said, peace is within oneself. Peace is within oneself to be found in the same place as agitation and suffering. It is not found in the forest or on a hilltop, nor is it given by a teacher. Where you experience suffering, where you experience suffering, you can also find freedom from suffering. Trying to run away from suffering is actually to run towards it. So what I had to learn was that all this chanda I had that I would get from weekly listening to Dhamma talks and wanting to free the mind was in the same place where I was fighting the mind for all the defilements I was dealing with, all the stuff that I hated that never seemed to change, that seemed as though I was going to be forever locked in rage. I would never get away from it. And this desire to not have anger or not have these defilements, that was equally as strong as this chanda or this desire for liberation. And my practice was not so much learning what greed was as much as it was feeling into greed and chanda. Where's chanda, this kind of liberative quality, and where's greed? So I'll kind of help you see what I mean. Chanda is one of what's called four powers. And it is the start of this pathway. So start of this energetic level, this powerful energy that we begin. And once you start with this chanda, it's called onward leading. It leads into, leads into, leads into. And what it leads into is this cultivation of concentration. Because this chanda is sort of like in the instructions when we started the sit, this willingness to begin again, begin again, 
begin again. I don't care how many times, begin again, begin again, begin again. That's like a motor, and it gets us started, this intention to practice, begin again, begin again, begin again, begin again. And before we know it, when we least expect it, we start cultivating a level of concentration. And that concentration, it's called the pathway to concentration. That pathway begins to lead us towards samadhi. It's actually called the pathway of uh, consciousness. But we begin to have this ability to stay still. I don't know. We just, all we were doing was beginning again, beginning again, beginning again. And gradually we get this buildup of sustaining our attention and then this buildup of samadhi and stillness. And then from that buildup of stillness, we start seeing things. Things start coming alive. We start noticing things. We start understanding things with wisdom and discernment. So this is this energetic pathway of desire that starts us in this motion and we gradually begin this onward leading path towards liberation. We don't actually have to liberate the mind. We started in motion with desire and then it carries us all the way through to this wisdom that we begin to understand things. At the same time, I have lived through this. That chanda starts on the path and we have some pleasant moment and then we're like, that's it. That's where we're going. So let's make that happen. And then we start striving for a particular result because I think I know what I'm doing here. So let's go. This is what we're going to do. And I start striving towards gaining something. I will force the mind to get still. I can maybe get some kind of stillness in the mind. Even what I would consider samadhi, I'm forcing all of this, forcing, forcing, forcing. But then I notice that my behavior stays the same. Because it's wrong view. It's not the natural arising of wisdom. It's this forcing my mind, forcing my behavior to be the way I think it ought to be. And in that forcing, I am pushing the mind and body into a direction. That's greed. Pushing towards getting a result that I think I have to have. That's greed. I think it has to be this way, therefore I got to make it happen. But real practice as difficult as our behavior can be, real practice is easy. It's softer, gentler, no pushing. We kind of just uh, begin to understand because whatever arises, we treat it as practice. Whatever comes to us, it's like a, um, Trumpel was saying, Ever experience comes to us, it is an experience of practice. It is an experience to learn something. So let's say some experience comes to you, anything, like me, I wanted a new car. The whole idea of trying to force and get a new car, you have to learn and begin to be willing to learn to see what happens when you force your way to get what you want versus when you're open and allow things to just come to you? What happens with the difference in that? One is greed. We kind of force our way to get what we want. And one is receptive. It's open. It's allowing. But that open and allowing acceptance is something that we have to learn to practice with. It is not something that just comes naturally. So this practicing with greed is really about learning how to practice with 
what is it like when I want something and try to make it happen? And what is it like energetically when I let the world, let the universe, let phenomena come to me and I practice with whatever arises, however it does? Somehow when we begin to learn how to practice with whatever arises, as it arises, we begin to learn what is greed and what is not. What is chanda, this uh, wholesome desire that sets us in motion towards liberation, versus what is greed, trying to get my way, trying to have whatever I want. You have to feel that. It's energetic. And we have to go, we have to be willing to feel that as a practice. So that's all finding good energetically. I want to leave you with, I think it's one last quote I have here. This is from James Baldwin. I love James Baldwin. He's so matter-of-fact about things. This is what he says. You have to decide who you are and force the world to deal with you, not with its idea of you. That's such a profound statement for practitioners. We have to decide who we are and then force the world to deal with us as a practitioner rather than their ideal of us. So there's some words in here that for practitioners we kind of run away from. This word force is one, you know, like, oh yeah, no, we don't force. And this idea of the idea of you, because uh, in this practice, there's it's all this talk about non-self. So non-self, non-self, who we're going to be. And what I like about that practice is, what I like about that quote, is that in truth, what is not often talked about as lay practitioners, is that this idea of discerning between greed and chanda, it takes some courage. It takes something. It's not as easy to do as one might think. Meaning greed feels very uncomfortable. And we live in a world that is very consumed with greed. And it's so natural. It's so natural. I mean, it took me until I did my taxes to realize that I probably fund Amazon more than anyone else. I mean, they are making, that's why that guy is making bank. Because I have somehow or another realized I don't have to go to the store. And it is so easy to just buy it on Amazon. I mean, I have an app. I don't even have to be at home. I can be in California, and it will be here by the time I get here. There is a societal kind of almost like blanketed kind of covering over greed, that we cannot even see it as we live in a world full of greed. So then when you begin to touch into greed, what you're going to feel is the pain of it, the discomfort of it. And our inclination is going to be to not connect with that discomfort. To, to slide over into just getting whatever we need on Amazon. It's so much easier than going to the store, for God's sake. I mean, we have to go out in traffic. I mean, it's just horrid. Then we may not even like what we get, and we get home. And Amazon, you don't even have to bother to box that stuff up anymore. You just take it to UPS, and they'll box it up. You don't have to do nothing. That ease in 
allowing greed to be here is so steeped in our culture that it takes something to begin to discern what is greed and what is not. And we need a couple of, like if you're going to go up a steep hill, you need a couple of walking poles. And those walking poles are two paramis that uh, really, really support their, they are just as energetic. I mean, the paramis are called the ten perfections, and they're all very much energetic. So they can all support you. But the two I want to point to that we're really going to need in order for us to practice beginning to understand the nature of greed is uh, renunciation and resolve. Meaning that at some point we have to begin to say no. At some point I said, okay, I'm going to try to not buy so much. I mean, because the way I learned how much I was giving money to Amazon was when I was doing my taxes and I looked at my bank account and most of my money went to Amazon and I saw it. And that's when I said, oh, okay, okay, this is too much. Okay, I'm going to cut back on all my Amazon, the Amazon purchases. Soon as you say that, put that renunciation there, do you know what happens? You start feeling the tension of how much you want to buy. Before, I just bought without any tension. But then when I put this renunciation up that said I was going to use restraint, now every time I go to use my Amazon app, I feel this tension around greed. I feel this pressure, and now I need to actually be myself, who I am, and stick to my guns about this. And that is where the pressure comes in. It doesn't come in if you don't think about greed and you just go with the flow. It comes in when you put this parami of renunciation up some degree of restraint on you. It can be anything. It doesn't matter what we do. Eating, sleeping, working. You know, you can think, oh, I work all the time. I'm so good at it. It's such a great thing. I mean, who could say something bad about, you know, working all the time? And then you put a restraint on it, like I'm going to actually leave work at a reasonable time. All of a sudden now, you're going to start feeling the twinge of greed, of wanting, 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 wanting. That's what you will begin to feel. When you interrupt or put any kind of barrier in your life to stop this flow of habit, you will feel the twinge or the sting of greed. And you will need something to enable you to stay with whatever uh, kind of uh, practice or noticing your greed, you will need something on the other side to counterbalance this renunciation. And that is resolve. So resolve is really uh, like right aspiration, right intention. Resolve is this capacity to remember your practice, remember uh, what brings you here, remember who you are and who you want to be, and to begin to look at your conduct in relationship to that intention of who you want to be. So it's not whether I buy stuff on Amazon. I could buy stuff on Amazon all day if I have the money. Amazon doesn't care. No one else knows about it. I have noticed, though, I live in an apartment building, so if you live in a house, you may not notice this. But I've been noticing that whoever's the first one to get an Amazon package, there's like no Amazon packages. And then an Amazon package will show up in our mailroom. 
And then all of a sudden, there's like five, six, seven, eight of them, and then nothing. And then as soon as we see them, it's like going to the gas station. No one's at the gas station. Then you pull in, and then everybody comes into the gas station. So there is something impulsive that happens. I just don't think it would be that way if Amazon's boxes were all plain and didn't have big Amazon, big Amazon trucks driving around. So you need a resolve. The force that I think, um, that I think, uh, James Baldwin is pointing to is not a force that you force, um, it's not aimed at the world, even though it will cause the world to see you as you are. It's aimed at our own capacity to stand up for ourselves in relation to our practice. That's what that force is. It takes a degree of energy. I'm going to tell you what kind of energy it takes. So you guys watch Lord of the Rings? For those of you that didn't watch Lord of the Rings, I'm going to try to explain it to you. But there's a moment when Gandalf is fighting this big, gigantic, fiery blob of fire monster. It's just fire. It's just a big monster, and it is nothing but fire itself. It's gigantic. And, of course, it wants to consume all of the heroes. And Gandalf has to stand in front of this fiery monster, and he has to tell this monster, you shall not pass. And the monster itself is like trying to eat all the people and consume them. And he has to put his stake in the ground and tell this monster, you shall not pass. That is a degree of force that we don't always talk about in practice. Because mostly we want practice to come across in this very easeful, relaxed, receptive way. And that is the nature of practice. It is very easy, very soft. Don't put a lot of pressure, striving, trying to get some proper result. But when it comes to your intention as to who you want to be, then you need a Gandalf stake that you are going to slam into the ground and hold it there. You need a resolve that you will begin to correct this kind of, that you will sort of be with the moment and check this greed, this over-consuming nature of the way we are, this needing to have everything the way we want it, this needing to control everything as if everything is about you. That capacity to begin to interrupt that, you need a Gandalf stake in the ground. And that's the um, resolve. And trust that you won't know that you need that degree of resolve until you agree to offer some restraint in your life. Just restraint on something. Just think of anything that you do that you like, and say, oh, I think I'm going to not get that coffee. I think I'm not going to buy that. I think I'm not going to use my cell phone. Do you know the level of resolve people have to have just to give up their phones on retreat? It is a major, major thing. So you just say, I'm not going to turn my phone on in the morning. Just simple, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to check my Facebook or whatever me, uh, social media you use. I'm not going to do that. Just a simple thing. Let me try it one time. The level of resolve you will actually need to follow through on that is when you're going to begin to see the nature of practice and the nature of greed. So at least you think 
that there's some degree of, of perfection here and start judging yourself if you can't do it. That is the ease of practice that the Buddha really pointed to each one of us learning for ourselves how the practice unfolds. There's no requirement here. There's no rule here. There's no right way to be or wrong way to be. There's monastics live in this huge box framed within their own uh, monastic code that they have to live by. And lay practitioners, we do not have that monastic code, even though there are framings within the precepts that the Buddha pointed out for us to live our lives in a very responsible way. But the way that monastics move through the code is they have to memorize those rules, memorize that code, and begin to find their, their uh, use renunciation and their resolve to stay within the code. We have to do the same thing. But the way that we find out where it's at is in a moment in time. In a moment in time when you're looking at your life and you're asking yourself, is this conduct representative of who I want to be seen as? Is this how I want the world to see me? Or do I want the world to see me otherwise? And when you start realizing that you want the world to see you otherwise, you will need a stake in the ground in order for you to live up to your own understanding, your own chanda, your own desire. This is what I think practice is about. It is not about a whole bunch of edicts to send to us to say, you got to be like this, you got to be like this, this is the way you are. Even though a lot of, you know, oftentimes as practitioners, many of us will set these rules. I can remember someone when I was going to buy my new car recently. Oh, well, you know, it's old now. It's been about five years. But when I was going to buy this new car, Someone says, oh, you're going to get a um, an electric car, right? And I said, no, nope. <laughs> I am not. I'm just going to get a regular car that takes gas. They were like, Tori, you're a Buddhist teacher. How can you do that? I said, I live in an apartment building. Where am I going to plug it in at? I mean, <laughs> what, on Capitol Hill? I can barely find a parking space, let alone try to, try to actually plug it in. I go to my neighbor's house. Can I hear some of your electricity? It's sort of this realization that I begin to realize that we put so many rules on ourselves as practitioners. And we do need to chop up some of those rules and instead Make it more alive in the moment. Is this how you want the world to perceive you? Is this how you want to be seen in the world? And um, use this quality of renunciation and determination to begin to learn and understand what is greed and what is it not for yourself. What is this energy of um, trying to force our way in the world and uh, what is it like to be more receptive and allow the world to come to us. So let's just sit a moment here. Sit quietly and we'll just let the words kind of settle inside our bones. Alrighty. 
Let's see if there's any questions or any comments anybody might have. We'll do this a little bit before um, um, before it's time to say goodbye. We'll see if anybody has any comments or questions. Oh, come on up, Deborah. Mm-hmm. I think it's on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hear me. This month, where, you know, there's what we want, 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 and the sense of, okay, I got enough, enough. Do we, where, where, is that a, a counter cultivation? So this quality of enoughness, uh, that's, that's a great, a great question. That is the point I was making about my Amazon spending. It is something that each of us have to learn. There's no, there's no meter out there that says it's enough. We, each of us, have to learn for ourselves what constitutes enough, what constitutes uh, greed and the wanting more than what you have. It's, there is no... Um, it's, it's, I think it's why I love the Buddhist practice so much, because I, I, I you like me, I pro- we had this feeling that he knew something, like he knew when it was enough. He knew what the enoughness would be. So we would ask him, what is enough? And I'm certain he knew what was enough. But it's not a, it doesn't matter if he knows what enough is. And there is some uh, some magical way of determining what enough is. It doesn't matter. Because what matters is when you determine there's enough here. When you determine that you're satisfied with what's being offered to you as a practice itself and not requiring something more than that. That's something that um, that each one of us has to learn. There is no magic enough. I will tell you this, though. It's strange because monastics sense pleasures. They are actually renouncing. So sense pleasures, monastics are... Um, gradually renouncing any kind of sense pleasure. But it is the opposite of householders. Householders need sense pleasures to stay on the path. See, for a monastic, our their uh, livelihood is taken care of. They're, they're taken care of by the community. So the whole framing of their world is to practice and to see where they're taking more than their share. But is but as a householder, we actually need to do something different. We actually need to enjoy work. We need to acquire wealth. We need to actually... Uh, learn a skill. And so if you think about wealth, is there a place where you'd have enough wealth? The Buddha said you just gain wealth and then uh, don't be stingy, be generous, and you um, uh, take care of the wealth you receive. Because he knew if lay practitioners didn't acquire wealth, how are they going to take care of the monastics? So there's a way in which we actually want to acquire wealth. 
And in the course of working and acquiring wealth, you are going to want to have sense pleasures. You're going to want to eat good food. You're going to want to have a comfortable bed. You're going to want to have a lot of comforts. You're going to have, you're going to have to have a place to live and you're going to want to have a nice place to live. These kinds of things for a monastic, it might be more, uh, taking less and less and less and less. But for a householder, it's different. Do you see what I'm pointing to, Deborah? There's a difference here. So you have to decide if you are a single person and you got this big old huge seven room house, maybe that might be a little bit too much for you. But you have to decide because it may very well be that your house is the house where the family always comes and has big parties. And so then seven bedrooms, you may have to clean that place up all the time. But that's where everybody comes. Do you see? So there's no necessarily because you see one person living in a huge house. It may not necessarily be just greed. Might be that they are the, the place where everybody gathers. And so they're like the caretaker of the place the family gets together at. And then it's not greed. It's actually an act of service for the rest of the family that you take care of and maintain the place that we all get together. So you can't, so each of us have to decide for ourselves where is the line of what's enough and whether or not we're just uh, hoarding or taking more than uh, is necessary and when we are just um, being part of the family. Uh, Iris? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so, um, I, I, you know, I appreciate that you're um, pointing to the fact that we each have to decide, you know, what's enough. And, of course, because we are sensual beings and we all have greed, hatred, and delusion, um, I, I think part of the understanding is, as you pointed out, you know, what does, what does greed feel like? And when I respond to what might be a greedy urge, does that cause my heart to close? Does that cause suffering? Or does that cause release? So a- acquiring something doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's greedy. And we really need to check in with ourselves about how both the intention to get something, the act of getting something, and then how we feel like, how we feel after we get something, you know, is that making me happy in the Buddhist sense? You know, am I, is my heart opening or am I getting tight and contracted and like, oh boy, I have something now and I have something that you don't, you know, obviously, even though we've gotten something, um, if it's not giving us deep happiness, maybe it's not such a great idea. Yeah, I think you're pointing to uh, something else. Um, one way, I don't know if I brought this out as much as I wanted to in the talk, but one of the main ways to begin to notice greed is our habit patterns. Greed usually shows up when we're not paying attention, when we're just consuming or we're just getting or we're just controlling. That's where greed usually shows up. So when we begin to interrupt that habit pattern, that's why we need a big stake in the ground because as soon as we try to interrupt that habit pattern, we are going to see this big old huge fiery monster that's coming at us saying, what are you doing? We need that. And that's when we're going to need to have some resolve to hold true. But my intentions, uh, the resolve is pointing to right intention. And right intention, like you're noting, is this uh, intention to be as kind as we can 
in any moment be as kind as we can to actually do the least amount of harm and have a degree of restraint moment after moment after moment is can I be a little bit more restrainful here and not so habitual or can I be a little bit more intentional here and not so habitual if we begin to check how we're behaving against that backdrop of being kind, being um, as non-harming as possible, and are we moving intentionally, then we can begin to see a little bit more. The suffering comes because it's always suffering to um, not follow habit. It's very easy to follow habit. I think because we have a mind-body system that basically it finds the easy way out. Why bother to think about something? Just the mind is like you've seen one breath, you've seen them all. Why do we have to keep watching the breath? It's so stupid. I can tell you what the breath is. Don't you don't have to do this, really. <laughs> And so it's really trying to convince us to just let it manage the breathing part. And just can we just take care of all the stuff we got to take care of? Why do you want to just sit and watch the breath? But if you sit and watch the breath and begin to have restraint against that mind chatter and have restraint against that habit energy, you will begin to see that uh, there's a, a quite a bit more peace and ease in that restraint. So did you have another thing you were going to say? Well, uh, thank you. I, I was, um, uh, uh, yeah, the idea about, about habit uh, patterns. And, and so the practice affords us this wonderful opportunity to see what the heck we're doing. And, you know, you think about somebody like some really rich person, um, maybe the person who owns, you know, or who started Amazon, um, you know, there, he probably and a lot of people probably don't self-reflect very much about, you know, s some of the things you just said, reflecting upon um, if what I'm doing, you know, how does that affect others? And am I causing harm? And am I being harmonious? So, so this practice really allows for me a lot of self-reflection and is very helpful. Yeah, well, be careful about whether or not uh, thinking that wealthy people reflect because um, there's a lot of wealthy people that reflect. And I, I wouldn't even be so quick to say the owner of Amazon doesn't reflect about the nature of their harm. Their reflections might not be the same choices I'd make, but it doesn't mean that they're not reflective. It's just that each one of us have to find our way for ourselves as to whether or not how we're moving in the world. And we're all responsible for our own conduct in what we do and how our conduct impacts the rest of the world. All righty, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. I think we have time. Um, I want to, was it Emily that was just talking? Yeah, okay. uh, that was Iris. Iris, hi, Iris. Um, I'm going to sort of jump from her question and kind of flip it around. <clears throat> she had a really, I think, a really, Important observation that we have to hold that up a little bit. Is this better? Can you guys yeah, hear me better? better. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, that um, when you're feeling some sort of greed, clinging attachment, it's like motivating you. You know, you're in the grips of it. And 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 what Iris said was, you know, feel how that may shut down your compassion, and you know, it, it eclipses that goodness you may have in your heart. You flip that around and supposing you're on the receiving end yeah. of somebody's greed in the sense that you've been sort of, your humanity's been stripped away or ignored. Uh, you, you, you know, you've been the target, the victim, inadvertent perhaps. And you're going to have your own 
serious responses to that. Yeah. Which I, I presume that might jump into the aversion side, but it could easily be the greed side if it's someone you really cared about. Yeah. Who does that to you, does something to you in an, in a callous way to serve their greed, which they may not be even aware of. And here you are, you're going to be, you're going to have your own greed. It's like, wait a minute, you know, you're my loved one in one form or another. How do you then say, well, I'm going to just not cling to it, not be attached, not have my own greed about that sort of thing? That is a great question. And the reason why it's a great question is because I think what you're pointing to is the whole practice, right? So in that moment, you're going to have your own wanting this to be otherwise, wanting and your your own kind of energy here. And there's a way as practitioners, we kind of judge ourselves. Like as a practitioner, I should be okay with this. But you don't have to be okay with it. You really don't have to have this sense of there is an absolute way of being with something. So if you find yourself stuck in some greedy pattern, that is the nature of practice. You just want to look at it. You're just going to watch it and see, am I being the way I want to be regardless of the situation? Am I being? That's why you need a stake in the ground. Because, yes, you might. There are times when we all feel this kind of backlash from other people, and we then have this uh, impulse to fix it, to make it right, to get our way, to change everything. And that energy can get very greedy. Like, you cannot be that way. Because I want you to be the way I want you to be. Yes. The thing is, in the way the Buddha set this practice up is not with an edict that says you have to be a certain way. So even if you start shoving on the other person to push your way upon them, the idea is do you know you're doing that? That's all it really is. Now you can be harmful to the other person. They were harmful to me. I'm going to be harmful to them. You can be that way. But the truer place as a practitioner is you want to know that's what you're doing. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what you want to practice with. You want to know this is harmful behavior. And then you want to look at yourself and begin to weigh your own self. There were times when I could get very, very... Uh, insistent about somebody going to jail. Insistent about it as a prosecutor. I'm like insistent. I could get stupid insistent about it. And one time a friend of mine, uh, who taught me actually nonviolent communication was an ex-con. And he said, you know, everything you do to worry in your job, you want to do. And I said, no, no, no. If I issue arrest warrants, I don't want to have somebody get arrested. I have to do that just because they committed the crime. But I don't want to do that. I, I, it's just something I have to do, but it's not, uh, it's not something I want to do. And he said, if you didn't want to do it, you would quit your job. And I just never cut. The the responsibility is what you're talking about. That when you're practicing, it's not so much what you do as much of taking responsibility for whatever happens. So if you push back against someone that harms you, you got to take the responsibility for that push. And you may turn around and cause harm in the world again, your own self. But you, this is about you taking responsibility for yourself rather than saying, I have to do this because this person did that. Do you see what the difference? I guess what I'm getting at is if you're, if you feel, uh, injured by the other person. Yeah. And 
you know, you can have it out with the other person. You can, you're going to do all kinds of communications with the other person. How do you deal with your own greed not to be harmed, not to feel injured? Uh, you know, because you've got to deal with that too. That's what I'm saying. Right? The whole, the whole world, the whole framing of this is not, I just don't want to send a message that says, this is the way you have to be. Somebody harms you, you got to suck it up, you got to deal with it. You may just push right back. Who knows? All I'm saying is, however you move in the world, be responsible for how you're going to move in the world. And so whatever that looks like, just begin to pay attention to how you're being, whether it's hatred, whether it's greed, whether it's just delusion and ignoring it. Either way, you just want to be responsible for your own behavior. So with, so with greater awareness That's of it. what you're feeling, what's your, your injury, um, Yep. And with that comes a potential for release from those things. It comes it what it comes with is the wisdom to know the difference, to begin to understand whether or not it's worth pushing back. Sometimes it may be worth it, and sometimes it may not be. But you got to learn that by paying attention to what happens and how you act. If you're not wanting, wanting to, to push back, what if you just want to, like, get past it? You want to not feel the misery of the thing, and that person goes on with their life. Yeah. Then you go on with your life by not following. This is what we're going to talk about when we get to the uh, delusion. The delusion is they've gone on about their lives, and you're still walking around with all that energy. That's delusion. So rather than frame it under the greed side, it's probably better to frame it under the delusion side. But I'll just give you a little heads up. There's a thing called the four distortions of mind, where we one of them is we take something personal that's not personal. The person is just doing their thing. They don't even think about you. They just do it. But you get this impact. And then you take it personally, and then you carry it with you the rest of your life. When they didn't even see you, they go about their business. You see? Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's a foreshadowing of where we're going. (laughs) So thank you all for being here, and I'll see you again soon.